0: Hey everyone, there's a lot of you guys tonight, everyone's back from school, I know a bunch of you graduated, so congrats grad, I can actually say that in context, that was great. Um, So we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 today, so go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. My name is Christian. Christian. And I'm on the leadership team here at Kairos. I lead the worship team and the sound team. So if you play an instrument or you sing and you want to use those gifts to serve the people here at Kairos, come talk to me. If you are sitting next to someone who plays an instrument or sings and they're not moving, give them an elbow to the rib and have them talk to me afterwards. Um, And if you have any experience at all with sound, plugging microphones in, recording stuff at home, or if you don't, that's cool too, we need people on the sound team, I think half our sound guys had like no experience doing sound, so we can train you, talk to me, we need people a whole heck of a lot, Um, so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 and we're going to pick up where Josh left off last week, so we're going to start in verse 7, we're going to read through this thing real quick and we're going to break it apart. So here we go. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, they have not known my ways. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are, God. We thank you that you have um, given us your word, that you have spoken to us clearly um, through the Bible, God. And I pray tonight as we unpack this, Lord, I pray that you would help us to um, retain attention. I pray, God, that you would speak now through this, Lord. Would your words be spoken If there's anything that I'm going to say that's going to be unhelpful, I pray that you help me forget to say it. And if I do say it, would you help us all forget what I said? Um, But would you speak now, God? Would you encourage us, Holy Spirit? Would you illumine our hearts that we might hear you? So speak now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in verse 7, he starts this whole thing off, and he's quoting here from the passage that josh read before we prayed so he's quoting from psalm 95 and it's interesting because david wrote that song psalm and in verse seven he says therefore as the holy spirit says not david but the holy spirit so here's a cool little passage that you can use to show that the bible is divinely authored because it says so himself so this is what it says verse seven therefore as the holy spirit says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so we kind of need to know what in the world is talking about. We kind of need to know the historical context of this. Because if you don't, that just made zero sense to you completely, right? And so, what the author of Hebrews is referring to, what David is referring to when he wrote the Psalm, is the Exodus generation, Moses' generation. And so, this can be found, you don't have to turn there, but just for your reference, this is found in Numbers 13 and 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll just summarize it real quick for you so we don't have to read two whole chapters, because we'll be here all night. But basically, what happens, if you guys remember the whole thing with Moses, so God rescues the Israelites and Mo, th- led by Moses from Egypt, takes them up to Mount Sinai, gives them the law, and then they go through the wilderness to the promised land, the land of Canaan. This is the land that God had promised that they would find rest in, that they would dwell in a place that would be their own. And so that's the whole thing. And so what happens here is after they get the law from Mount Sinai and they're at the promised land, they're at like the edge of it looking at it. Okay, And then what happens is Moses sends spies, he sends one person from each tribe of Israel to go and go check out the land, go see what it's like, is it good, what are the people like, what is the land like? And so they go and the spies go out and they check it out and they come back 40 days later and this is what they say, this is the report of the land. They say, we came to the land which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. So they spy out this land, and they come back, and they say, hey, this land is great. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's it's fruitful. We can prosper here. Only thing is, the people there are yoked, and their cities are fortified. They have towers, and they have walls, and they have weapons. That's the only thing that's kind of an issue. And then so Caleb is one of the spies. And he says, "Nah, dude, let's go do it. Let's go. Let's take them. We can take them. It's fine. But the other spies who were with him are like, did you not see their biceps? They're huge, right? These guys are strong. There's no way. We're not going to take these guys. And so what those spies did after that was they went to the rest of the Israelites and kind of spread this rumor. They, told, they gave like a bad report of the land, and they said this land devours all of its inhabitants. The people who are in it are strong, and their cities are fortified. And we can't, we can't take it. It can't be ours. And so in response to that, the whole congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And they grumbled and complained and they said, oh man, I wish we just died in Egypt. I wish we just died in the wilderness, in the desert. Why would God bring us all the way out here to kill us off in the land of Canaan? This is dumb. Let's just go back to Egypt. Let's raise up a leader for ourselves and let's go back to Egypt where we came from. Sure, we were slaves and everything, but it's still better than dying in the land of Canaan. And then Joshua says, guys, listen. God gave us this land. God promised us this land. And if he promised it to us, he's gonna give it to us, let's go. And instead of listening to Joshua, instead of believing, they started picking up rocks. They were gonna stone this guy. They were gonna stone Joshua. They were gonna stone Moses. And so they rebelled against them. And then God shows up. And he says, how long is this generation gonna provoke me? And so after that, God sends them back into the wilderness and they wander in the desert for 40 more years and that whole generation dies in the desert. They don't enter the promised land. It's not until the next generation, Joshua's generation, that enters the promised land. Okay, so that's kind of the historical background of this whole thing that happens. Um, I know it's kind of hard to feel it because we're not really promised land anymore. Um, But if you think about this, Think of it like this. Um, Some of you know this about me, but I graduated from Heritage High School. And then right after I graduated, I went straight to a four year. I went straight to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Freshman year of college. as an industrial technology major. And then I was there for two years, didn't graduate, switched my major like three times. I went from industrial technology to kinesiology to music. And then I decided, I really felt God calling me to do music for a living. And Cal Poly is not the place to study music. It's Cal Poly. And so I decided I'm gonna come home, and so I came back home to Brentwood, went to LMC, uh, and started taking music classes with the intent of going, transferring, and being a music major. I wanted to be an audio, I wanted to be a producer and record people's music and stuff. Um, Long story short, while I was here, uh, God said, "Nope, joke's on you, you're actually gonna study scripture. So I took Moody classes and now I have a Bible major. That's where I am right now. Um, But I went to Cal Poly for two years and from those two years, I now have $30,000 in student loans. Feels bad. Um, So side note, don't do that. If you are going to LMC and DVC right now for your first two years of college, y'all are doing it right. You guys are getting the same education, paying a whole lot less money. If you just came back from your four-year university, I hope you have a scholarship. But that's what's going on. So imagine this. I'm $30,000 in debt because of Cal Poly. If somehow, like Josh, our pastor, somehow just got blessed with a whole lot of money and God told him, I want you to use this and give some of it to Christian to help him with the student loans, that'd be sick. And if he called me up and was like, hey, Christian, like... I really feel like God is leading me to like give you this. And so I wrote out a check for you to pay off all of your student loans to the last cent. Um, only issue is I'm gonna be gone for a month, so I'm not gonna be home, but the check is on my dining table. Just come over, you have my house key, just go, come grab it. If Josh did that, I would leave here right now and go to his house and get it. Um, but this is a hypothetical situation, unfortunately. And so just imagine this, and so I drive to Josh's house to get this check to his apartment, punch in the little thing at the gate, the gate opens, I'm in his apartment complex, probably drive around a little more because there's never any parking over there. And then when I get to his door, as I'm about to unlock his door, I look at the doorknob, and there are four huge black widow spiders on the doorknob. So there, it's like, nope, no. And so I call Josh up and say, Josh, I don't know if you know this or not. You probably should. If you don't, we have issues. But there are four huge spiders on your doorknob looking at me with their eight eyes. And if Josh says, no, yeah, I know that. That's fine. Just go. It'll be fine. If you're someone like Sheldon who is deathly afraid of spiders, it don't matter what no one says. I ain't touching that thing. Right? And so that's kind of how this whole thing is. We're like, I know that the check's over there, but, but the spiders. Like, that's a legitimate, I don't want to touch the spiders. And so this is what is going on with the Exodus generation. They know that this promised land is theirs. God has told them that it's theirs. But the inhabitants in there are strong and they're afraid they might kill them and they're not going to be able to take it. And so that's kind of what's going on. That's what he's talking about here. In this psalm where Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is quoting from it. If we jump over to verse 15, it's kind of cool because the author of Hebrews interprets a part of this passage. And so we're interpreting his interpreting of this psalm. So it's interpretation. In verse 15, this is what it says As it is said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so he goes and he asks these series of rhetorical questions. And he kind of says all these things that they do. He says that they, they rebelled. He says that they provoked, that they sinned, that they were disobedient. But notice that none of those things were the reason why they couldn't enter the promised land. But verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so it wasn't because they rebelled, it wasn't because they sinned, it wasn't because they were disobedient, but it's because of their belief or lack of belief. It was because of their unbelief that all of those things happened. Because they didn't believe God, they rebelled. Because they didn't believe God, they were disobedient. And so this is the context of what Psalm 95 is talking about. And so within this context, the author of Hebrews gives this warning. And so this is one of the many warnings in Hebrews against apostasy. And so starting in verse 12, this is what it says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so he gives this warning, and he says, take care, in verse 12. And so take care, he's saying, watch out, or beware, or be on the lookout, or examine. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Hopefully that sounds familiar. Remember the thing that prevented the Exodus generation from entering the promised land was unbelief, okay? And so he says, look out, take care, lest there be in any of you unbelief, an evil, unbelieving heart. Then he says, leading you to fall away from the living God. Here we go. So fall away from the living God what does that mean if you fall anywhere on the calvinist side of things you might be squirming a little bit i definitely was and so what does it mean by falling away from the living god does that mean we were with god and then now we're not with god does that mean we were saved and now we're not saved we were christians now we're not christians what does that mean can you lose your salvation and all the calvinists are like nah dude they persevere the saints persevere I don't know why Calvinists talk like this. And so in order to understand this, what it means to fall away, we need to ask two questions, which I think are on your notes. But the two questions are this. Who is he talking to? Who is the author of Hebrews talking to? The Hebrews. Yes, but what kind of people are they? Who is he talking to? And what does he mean by fall away? And so the first part, who is he talking to? What we're asking is, is he talking to Christians or is he talking to non-Christians? Because if we're trying to figure out what fall away is, if, if, if that means like fall away like eternally, if that means like going to hell that can't apply to Christians, so maybe he's talking to non-Christians too. Let's see what it says. In verse 12, he says, take care, brothers. <clears throat> so brothers usually means like, like brothers in Christ, brothers in the church. Um, if we look at verse one of this chapter, he says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, that one's, that one's pretty explicit. Um, in verse six, he starts including himself in this exhortation. He says, we are his house if we hold fast. And again, in verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. So he is including himself in this, and he probably considers himself a believer, a Christian. And so on these verses, we can assume that he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. Could there be unbelievers at these churches? Probably, sure. There's probably unbelievers here. There's probably unbelievers on Sunday that show up. Um, But his address, his warning is directed towards The brothers, the Christians, the ones who share in the holy calling. So he's talking to Christians. Okay, so if he's talking to Christians, then the next question is, what does he mean by fall away? Because he can't mean going to hell, because Christians don't go to hell and Christians can't lose their salvation. So what does he mean? Does he actually mean that? And so remember, the whole context of this thing is the Exodus generation. That's this whole exhortation is sandwiched by psalm 95 and so remember within the context the exodus generation moses's generation cannot enter into the promised land because of their unbelief and they don't enter but rather they all die in the wilderness that's the context that he says this command in and if you guys remember from last week josh talked a lot about um, how moses was a type of christ this whole typology thing so there's moses and then he foreshadowed Jesus, who's the greater Moses. And so we are not under Moses anymore, but we are under Jesus. And it's the same kind of thing here where even the promised land of Canaan that the Israelites had, that promised land foreshadowed a greater promised land, the promised land that Jesus is bringing, which is the new creation, heaven. And so if that's the case, within that context, If unbelief prevented Moses' generation from entering Moses' promised land, why shouldn't we think that our unbelief wouldn't prevent our generation from entering our promised land or the new creation? And so where Moses' generation died a physical death in the wilderness, unbelief and the rejection of Christ, who is greater than Moses, would lead to not just a physical death, but a greater one, an eternal one. And so the falling away he's talking about here is a falling away eternally, is going to hell. Apostasy results in eternal damnation and a forfeit of the greater promised land, the presence of God and the new creation. So the author of Hebrews is talking to Christians, yes, and he's talking about falling away apostatizing eternally going to hell yes but I thought Christians can't lose their salvation yes all three of those things are true um, so we have to remember man that whenever we read scripture and we come up with an interpretation we always interpret scripture with scripture and so if we come up with something that seems to not make sense with this other scripture our interpretation there's something missing there and so we did this a few weeks ago But Josh went over a whole bunch of verses that talk about how Christians don't lose their salvation. There's three of them on your notes, I think. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them all real quick to you. But in John 10, Jesus talks about how no one will snatch them from my hand. I will not lose anyone that the Father gives me. In Philippians 1, Paul says, He who began a good work in you, namely began that salvation process, will be faithful, will bring it to completion. Romans 8, those whom he justified, he will also glorify. And so if God has given you grace to believe in the gospel, God will preserve you and you will be faithful until the very end. You cannot lose your salvation. And so those who have been called, those who truly believe in the gospel, will persevere and remain faithful until the end and will not fall away. And that's even in our text tonight. If we go to verse 14, This is what it says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We're going to get a little nerdy here, and we're going to look at the grammar of this. I know some of you guys don't like grammar, but I like grammar, and 70% of my humor is making fun of people's grammatic errors and typos. So we're going to look at grammar. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. We have come. If you think about that clause, that verb, have come, is that past tense. Okay, hold on. First, I have a joke. The past, the present, and the future walk into a bar. It was really tense. Okay. For we have come... That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. For we have come to share in Christ. Have come. Is that past tense, present tense, or future tense? Past tense. Have come. We have come. It doesn't say we're coming or we will come. We have come. Okay? This is something that happened in the past. For we have come to share in Christ. If. If makes the next clause conditional. So having come. To share in Christ is dependent upon, is only true if the next clause is true. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So, holding our confidence firm to the end is that past, present, or future? That's future, right? Because the end isn't here yet. That's something that happens later. If we hold fast, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end, that's something that happens in the future. And so this thing that happened in the past, having come to share in Christ, is dependent upon if we hold fast to the end. So something in the past, grammatically, is dependent upon this thing that happens in the future. It's kind of weird to see. So I used to work in pizza. I worked for Domino's and for Mountain Mike's. And one thing we had to do with the dough for pizza is we had to proof it or we had to let it like sit out for a little bit before we threw it in the oven. And so we take the dough out and kind of just leave it for a little bit and we can't use it, we can't use it to make pizzas until the appropriate amount of time and it is proofed. If you put unproofed dough through the oven and it hasn't proofed long enough, what happens is these bubbles start forming on the dough and they can get huge if they've really not been proofed. And like I've seen pizzas where half of the pizza is a bubble And if all the toppings are on there, they've all, like, slid in, slid in, slid. They've slid down the sides, and so there's just this huge blank spot on your pizza. And that's what happens if the dough hasn't been proofed long enough. And so we have, like, these huge, like, sticks with, like, a two-pronged fork at the end. And so we have to, like, look in there and, like, poke all the bubbles, make sure they don't get huge. And so this whole thing is at the – when the pizza comes out of the oven, if – there are bubbles if there are big bubbles that means that this dough has not been proofed long enough something that happened earlier does that make sense so this thing that happened later the bubbles is proof of the f- <laughs> proof is proof of the fact that something that happened before didn't happen that it wasn't proofed long enough okay so it's the same thing here if someone holds fast until the end then that shows that previously they have come to share in Christ. If we put this in the negative mode, if someone does not hold firm until the end, then they have not come to share in Christ. Does that make sense? Is that clear? It's not, if they, have, if they do hold to the end, they will come to share in Christ. It's not a future thing. It's a past thing that has already happened. Okay? And so... What he's saying here is that the only true indicator of whether someone has come to share in Christ, whether someone has believed in the gospel, whether someone is a Christian, whether someone is saved, the only real 100% indicator of whether that has actually happened is if they remain faithful till the end. And that's it. That's the only one. No attending church, no coming to Kairos, no coming to small group, no reading the Bible, no preaching, no leading worship. None of that is a guaranteed indicator that someone is really saved. I think a clear example of this is just like Judas. And so we know that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. And nowhere in scripture does it say that like Judas was like the odd man out or like the ugly duckling or anything like that. Like it'd be super awkward if like Peter and John are out like healing people in Jesus' name and like Judas tries it and it doesn't work. It's like, this is awkward. Judas, what's going on? You know, that's why like at the last supper when Jesus is like, so one of you is gonna betray me. Everyone's like, who? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? No one knew if those things happened. Everyone's like, that's obviously Judas. Like, come on. But that didn't happen. And so Judas showed all of these outward signs like the rest of the apostles did. No one suspected that Judas would be the one to betray Jesus because to everyone else, he looked exactly like the rest of the apostles. And so in the same way, nothing, no leading worship up here, no preaching, no coming to small group, none of that stuff, though they're good, none of those are a guarantee that we're saved, that this person is saved. Um... And I know this is true because, like, even now, um, with some of you, next to you or in front of you, there's probably an empty seat where a year ago or two years ago, there was a brother or sister praising God right next to you, serving in the church right next to you. And now they're not. They just got real, real quick. And so I know it's like a... It's a scary thing to think about. Now there's the questions of like, shoot, well, am I safe? Like I'm in small group and I'm coming to Kairos, but I'm not safe apparently. And so I think we just need to remember this fact that our salvation and our faith isn't dependent upon us, but it's dependent upon God. If you are here and you believe in the gospel, it's because God began a good work in you and he's gonna be faithful to complete it. If you are in Christ There is no sin too great, no struggle too hard. There is no height, nor depth, nor life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor things present, nor thing to come. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as will we be when he comes. Our our hope is secure in Christ. That's a great thing. Praise God. And so there's this question, okay, if God will preserve the saints until the end, then what's the point in encouraging each other, in even what Hebrews is saying here, in these warnings? What is the point if God has elected people and they are going to be saved and they are going to hold fast until the end no matter what? Because if that's true and God has elected this person, and they will hold firm until the end. Nothing I say really matters because regardless of what I say, God has elected them, and they're going to hold firm until the end. And to that I say that these warnings and these encouragements and these exhortations may be the very means by which God preserves these people. Because God is sovereign not only over the end, not only in the end result, but also he's sovereign over all of the things that make that happen. Okay, we just finished Jonah like a month ago. And if you guys remember in Jonah, God had planned, God had appointed, God had elected that Jonah will give his message to Nineveh. And God also sovereignly appointed the storm and the fish that would cause him to repent and go do that. And so the ends and the means are all appointed by God. If you think about Paul, God sovereignly appointed that Paul would be one of the greatest evangelists to the Gentiles, one of the most prominent writers of the New Testament, and he also appointed everything that would make that happen. He appointed Ananias that would come and share the gospel with him and baptize him. So everything in between now and then is all still appointed by God. And so in the same way, these exhortations that are found in Scripture The encouragements that we give each other are reminders of the gospel. Those things may be the very things that God uses to keep us in the faith. And if we are elect, then we will heed those warnings. They're 100% effective. Okay, cool. Makes sense. And so with this warning to not fall away from the living God, the author of Hebrews gives us two commands to prevent an evil unbelieving heart Look like in verse 12 take care we talked about this a little bit but that's the first one take care or look out watch out beware examine yourself check yourself ch- check check your- check yourself before you wreck yourself um, we my wife and I recently got a dog we got a puppy he's a corgi and he's really cute because he's really long and he has short little legs um, and he's actually super clumsy because of his short legs. He can't jump on the couch because his legs are so short. It's kind of adorable, um, and his ears are, like, he's cute. Um, his name is Curry, and people have asked me why we named him Curry. And to that, I say I am a huge Warriors fan and a fan of Thai food. So there you go. But we took Curry to the vet last weekend, um, and they did a skin scrape on him, so they got some of his skin and examined it. And they found two little mites on him. Turns out he has scabies, which are like microscopic spiders. There's lots of spiders in this sermon. But, yeah, so he has scabies. We took him in because he was itching a whole lot, and it looked really uncomfortable. Um, so, yeah, he has scabies. Great. His medicine is coming in tomorrow. Nope, Thursday. I tracked it today. Yep, Thursday. Um, <coughs> And so they found out that he has scabies because they examined him and they looked at him. They did a skin scrape and they found these two little mites on him. And so in the same way, the author of Hebrews is saying here, check yourself, examine yourself, watch out, look out, take care, and examine your heart that it's not an evil and unbelieving one. Look for the signs of an evil and unbelieving heart. And what are those signs? Well, he talked about it. Yeah, he talks about it later when he's talking about the Exodus generation. The reason that they couldn't enter the Promised Land is because of unbelief, and because of their unbelief, they rebelled, they provoked God, they sinned, all that kind of stuff. And so he says, "Take care, look out, and examine yourselves, lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart in any of you." The second command is in verse thirteen. In verse thirteen, he says. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he says, exhort one another every day or encourage one another every day. And so we have to ask the question, what does it mean to exhort one another or to encourage one another? What kind of encouragement is that? Is that like, have a great day? Or is it posting an inspirational quote on their Facebook wall. If you guys know Tino and Kevin and Cole, they're in my small group, so I can say this. Um, It's kind of interesting to see the way that they encourage each other. They've been in my small group for a year. I'm still trying to figure this out. But this is how they encourage each other. Kevin will go to Tino and say this. You're ugly. (laughs) That's their encouragement. And then Tino says, don't you ever disrespect me like that again. Puffs his chest out. That's, the, you know, and then if Cole's there, just, what's goody? Cole, that has nothing to do with what we're, so what kind of encouragement is it? If you guys remember this whole thing, the whole reason why the Exodus generation couldn't enter the promised land is unbelief. It's the belief part, and so it's not just fixing someone's behavior or addressing their behavior, but addressing their belief. Because the reason we sin, the reason we act wrongly is because we believe wrongly. And so we need to be reminding one another of what we believe. We need to be reminding each other of the gospel. Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians do. If you guys remember in Romans, Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 1. In verse 8 he says this to the Romans. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And so he says to the Romans, I'm I'm so thankful for you guys. I praise God for you guys because your faith is known throughout the world. Your faith is world famous. Like you guys are famous for your faith in God. And so I'm thankful for you guys for that. In that same paragraph, just a few lines down in verse 15, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And so these guys have faith in the gospel that is known throughout the world, and yet Paul still wants to preach the gospel to them. It's because we as Christians need to be reminded of the gospel because we, we quickly forget it. Um, I was talking to someone like a, a few weeks ago, I think, um, and they were talking about how like, man, at Golden Hills, like when Phil preaches or Larry preaches, it's always, it's always kind of the same thing. It's always like the gospel. It's always like Jesus lived the perfect life, took our place on the cross, rose, ascended, new creation stuff. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Like, Don't you think we should have something new? And it's interesting because I remember thinking like, yeah, we do say all the same stuff and we're still sinning. That's interesting. And so we we forget the gospel a lot. And I think part of that is The last half of this verse, Um, it says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think deceit, lying is Satan's tool of choice. If you guys remember in the garden, it was a lie that had this whole thing happen. Did God really say that? You're not going to die. You're actually going to become like God if you eat this fruit. And Adam and Eve believed that lie, and they fell. Even in the Exodus generation, it's kind of the same thing. Um, God had already promised them that they're going to get this land in Canaan, that it's theirs. This is the promised land. And then Satan says, but look, look at all these people. Look at all these cities. This is going to be hard. You guys can't do this. You won't be able to make it. You're going to die. You should just go back to Egypt. Don't you guys remember how it was in Egypt? You guys had food. You guys had water. You guys were safe there. Just go back to Egypt. It was better in Egypt. And it's interesting because that's a very similar lie that Satan uses for us all the time. That God has promised us life. And Satan says, don't live the Christian life. That's too hard. Don't you remember how it was before? It was easier before. Don't stop looking at porn. Don't stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Don't stop not forgiving. Don't stop being angry. That's too hard. Go back to the way it was. And we look at these things, and as we try and live the Christian life, sometimes we buy it. I don't want to break up with my girlfriend. That's too hard. I don't want to give up these friends that I'm hanging out with. It's not worth it. It's too hard. And so that's why the author of Hebrews tells us to exhort one another every day because we need these encouragements. We need to be reminded of the gospel. And this too, man, this is like one of the reasons we can't replace meeting as a church with streaming services on the internet, with watching sermons on the internet because we're called to exhort one another. And how can we exhort one another when we're alone in our living room? It doesn't make sense. And so the third thing is this. He says, as long as it is called today. If you are a college student, you are very familiar with this idea that if a paper is due tomorrow, you do tomorrow, right? Then you fail your class. And so what he's saying here is there's a sense of urgency here. There is no, I'll, I'll, I'll wait till tomorrow to repent. I'll wait till tomorrow to exhort my friend or to encourage my friend because tomorrow isn't guaranteed for any of us. Jesus could come back tonight. Or we can walk through those doors and get hit by a car and die. And like that's a legitimate thing that can happen. I don't think anyone necessarily is expecting to die when they die. Um, And so as long as it is called today, remind each other of the gospel. Encourage one another with the gospel. Sing the gospel. The reason we sing the songs that we sing are on purpose. The songs that we sing aren't like just happy joy songs, but they're filled with the gospel. They're filled with rich theology about what Christ has done for us so that when Satan comes to us with these lies, When Satan comes to us and says, you cannot defeat this sin. And we sit here in our sin thinking about what we've done, maybe what we've done in the past and saying, I can't do this. I know that I shouldn't be doing this thing, but I keep doing it. I can't do it. And everyone around us is singing at the top of their lungs where sin runs deep, your grace runs deeper. Hallelujah, death is beaten, Christ is risen from the grave. Hallelujah, it is finished, all to you, the highest praise. When everyone around us is singing these gospel truths, that's an encouragement to us. That's why we sing the gospel. If we're we're sitting here, maybe some of you tonight are burdened with the fact that you are sinful. And struggling with the fact that, man, I have done so much, even today, I don't know that God can forgive me. And everyone around us is singing, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That we're singing that to each other. We're declaring that to each other. Yes, we're singing these truths to God and giving God glory. And at the same time, we're singing these to each other. Because we need to be reminded of these things. And so today, man, this is, this, this is for us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts As long as it is called today, let us exhort one another. And so tonight, if you are struggling with sin, man, I just encourage you, would you talk to someone about it tonight? Would you tell someone about it? Would you pray with someone because tomorrow is not guaranteed for you? And so we're going to have snacks out there tonight after we sing. And I hope and pray that our conversations aren't about the snacks but about what we are going through, that we might encourage one another and exhort one another in the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you for his work on the cross and the fact that he indeed is alive and is risen and is seated at the right hand of God.